Amen. The tomb is empty. Amen. Because the tomb is empty and Jesus' tomb was empty, you're empty. your tomb is going to be empty one day too. Because what God has done for Jesus is what God is going to do for all of his people. So whenever you accepted Christ as the Lord of your life, you know, as you accepted him as your Lord, I just want to encourage you to keep following him. Like, Don't give up. Don't play it safe. Don't become complacent. Keep following Jesus. Which means you need to develop deep roots in Christ. You need to build your life on Christ. And as you do this, your faith will grow stronger. And as your faith grows stronger, your heart will overflow with gratitude and thankfulness for all God has done for you. Now, if we fail to do that, here's the warning. Is that our minds can be taken captive or our minds can be kidnapped by all the philosophies of the world and by all the nonsense, like all the things that come after us for our attention and our affection, any of those things that come after us that aren't of Christ aren't a way that we need to follow. So what you learn when you surrender your life to Jesus is that in Jesus, you get a picture of the fullness of God in bodily form. That if you want to know what God is like, you look at and you study Jesus. Jesus is going to show you what God is like. And when you come to that confession in your life, what you will also learn is that you were made complete in Christ, not by any human relationship, not by any human accomplishment. You were made complete in Jesus. And whenever, whenever you came to Christ, when you came to Christ, as you did, you surrendered your life to Jesus in baptism. And what you learned was that you don't come to Christ by some physical procedure, so there was nothing that was cut away from your life, to put you in right relationship with God, there was a spiritual cutting away. Maybe we could say it's a spiritual circumcision, that there were things that were cut away from your life so that you could be brought into right relationship with Christ. And as Jesus was buried in a grave, so in baptism, we're buried with Christ. And with Christ, we are raised as a new life. That what God did for Jesus is what God will do for us. And as we surrender our lives to Jesus and we came up out of that water as new people, what we are doing is confessing with our lives that we believe God has the power to raise Jesus from the grave. Now here's also the truth, all right? Is that you were dead in your sin. Not just a little bit, like fully dead in your sin. But here's the good news. Is that God made you alive in Christ. God made you alive in Christ, and God did this by forgiving your sin and by taking away, like doing away, dismissing the record of all of our wrongs. And for God to forgive sin and to dismiss the record of all of our wrongs, he did this by nailing all of that to the cross. And as it was nailed to the cross, what Jesus did is he disarmed and dismantled the powers of the world, and Jesus made a spectacle of them by the victory he won on the cross. And the whole church said, amen. So now let me say happy Easter. What I just did is I recited Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15 to you. The Colossians 2, Paul begins, and if you'll throw this up on the screen, Paul begins in verse 6 and 7 by saying, look, hey, here's, here's the story that you've been brought into. Like when you embrace Jesus as the Lord of your life, you surrendered your life to him, and then Paul begins encouraging them. Make sure you are rooted in God. Make sure you're building your life in God, having a stronger faith, that your heart is full of gratitude. Because if you don't do this, verse 8 is going to happen to you. Right? If you fail to keep rooting yourself in God, and you fail to keep pressing deeper and deeper into what it means to embrace the power of the resurrection in your life, what's going to happen is your mind and your heart is going to be taken captive by philosophies of the world and all the other nonsense that surrounds us. 
So Paul's encouraging them. Stay rooted in the gospel. Stay rooted in the resurrection. And then he talks about verses 13 through 15, which are three of my favorite verses in the entire Bible about what Jesus did on the cross. That at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers of the world. Now, I know, and I've probably taught this before, all right, but some of us are thinking about death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is. Jesus died on the cross, and when Jesus died on the cross, Satan and all of his friends, the powers of darkness, they thought they won until Sunday morning. And Sunday morning when Jesus was alive, then they realized they had lost. But the way Colossians 2 talks about this, the way Hebrews 2 talks about it, other places in Hebrews, the way it talks about it is, on the cross, there was a battle that was fought. And on the cross, the powers of darkness knew something happened. They weren't waiting until Sunday morning to figure out. On the cross, there was a victory that was won. That in the moment when all the powers of darkness thought they were humiliating and dismantling and dismembering Jesus, Jesus was actually dismantling them. The way it's said one, by one person, he says this, he says, the cross is a place where the decisive battle between Christ and sin took place, where the powers of Satan brought all their strength to the attack and where they were defeated. It is the place where the wages of sin were accepted on behalf of the whole human race. So today, we do not celebrate a dead man who did something heroic that was really good for all the world. We celebrate a living man and a living Savior who conquered the grave. And because he conquered his grave, we're going to conquer our graves too. This is the story that we are celebrating today. Amen. A week ago, me, uh, Casey, and myself, and a few of you in this room, we were in Jerusalem. And we woke up that morning, and our guide said, Hey, today you're going to be doing a lot of walking. You thought you've walked the last seven days. Today we're really going to walk. And which Joyce Bellamy in this church has never been more excited in her entire life. She's like, Oh, more walking. Let's do it. But he warned us. He said, Here's what we're going to do. The bus is going to. Drop us off on the Mount of Olives, and we're going to take the journey of the cross from there. So we went all the way to the Mount of Olives, and that's where we start. And we walked what would have been the road of the triumphal entry. When Jesus was in Bethany, came over the Mount of Olives, where there was this like parade, this procession, and Jesus is there, and, and we saw the image and caught hold of the image of where Jesus would have wept over all of Jerusalem, knowing he was entering into the city to give his life for the sake of that city and the entire world. So we walked what would have been the road of the triumphal entry. We got to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, and there we spent a little time and we reflected and we stood next to olive trees that are over 2,000 years old. Those things live forever, all right? And then we went from the Garden of Gethsemane through the Kindron Valley into Jerusalem where Herod's palace would have been, where Jesus would have received his 40 lashes minus one, where Jesus would have started his journey of carrying that cross. And then we walked the way of the cross. We walked to the place, and there are two different places where they think it would have happened. And the joke in Israel is we don't know exactly where Jesus was buried because he wasn't in there long enough for us to mark it, all right? Uh, but, but we took the journey of the cross, and then we went there, and we had this amazing worship service at the garden tomb. And then we went and had our farewell dinner, and then it was time to get to the airport. And we had to go through Emmaus to get to the airport, which happens in Luke chapter 24. So our guide had us read that, and then he said, I have one more place for you. And Marah took us. This was the very last place we went in Israel. You can see this image right here. We went to a gas station called Elvis. <laughs> it's in Emmaus. 
So you think in Emmaus is where Luke 24, like Jesus broke the bread and everybody sees it's Jesus and there's the resurrected Savior. There's a store called Elvis in Emmaus. And he knew we're from Memphis and Tennessee, so he's like, man, I'm taking you to this store. And uh, like, I like, I like Israeli food, all right? But to see a place with hamburgers and chicken strips and fries and all the coffee you wanted, and there was Dr. Pepper there. Judy Lillard has never been more excited in her entire life, all right? Like, Judy was like, the new heavens and the new earth can come and get me right now. We got, we got Elvis and we got Dr. Pepper. And then we went to the airport. That whole day, we got to experience what the last few hours of the life of Jesus were like. We've been on a journey here at Sycamore View called the Scandal of the Cross the last seven weeks, and I've talked to you about images of the crucifixion. Now, I've laid seven in front of you, and I've preached five of these. Uh, Jim Hinkle did one uh, last week. My dad preached on the Passover lamb two weeks ago. And here are seven images. And there are more than this. So I don't want you to think there are just seven ways to think about the crucifixion. But what I've tried to do over the last seven weeks is to expand in your heart your appreciation for the cross and for you to know that you could study the cross of Christ for the rest of your life and you're never going to be able to fully grasp everything Jesus accomplished on the cross. And let me go through these just quickly for you. There's the idea of Christus Victor, which I read and recited for you in Colossians 2, that on the cross there was a victory that was won. There was a battle that was fought. Jesus stepped into a fight and he won. There's the image of scapegoat, which we talked about Friday night, that Jesus, all the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and Jesus has carried them away further than the eye can see. A few weeks ago, I talked about ransom, one of the oldest motifs of just sacrifice. And the whole idea of ransom is because of our sin, we were held in bondage by the enemy and that we're held in bondage, like we had to be set free. So a price had to be paid. And Jesus chose to pay that price, not with money and not with resources and not with promises. He paid that price with his own life so that we could be free. There's the image of the Passover lamb, which Jews would have celebrated for over a thousand years and then Jesus became the ultimate Passover lamb to set people free. There's an idea of penal substitutionary atonement which most of us have heard in some form all of our lives. Most of us who grew up in traditions where you take communion every week, this was the primary way people probably led you and have led you to the table to take the bread and the cup. And the idea is that because of sin, we are separated from God and there was a death we should have died, but instead of us dying, it Jesus took our place. He stepped in and took our place. There's the idea of moral exemplar. That Jesus has set an example. Jesus didn't just come down to the earth to die on a cross. Like, that was the peak. That was the battle that was won. But Jesus came to show us how to live life, how to love neighbors, how to love each other, how to, how to care for people, how to feed uh, hungry bellies. Like Jesus came to do all this for us and to die on a cross. Like He has set an example with the, that he was sacrificial in the way he lived. He was sacrificial in the way he died. And last but not least, solidarity. That Jesus came to become like us in every way possible. Like he came to walk the ground we walk on, to bleed our blood, to die a death, to die our death, to die his death. And I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 2, in just five verses, and I'm not suggesting that the author of Hebrews has these seven motifs, these seven images that I laid in front of you, but I am suggesting that you can find all of them in just these five verses in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Solidarity and moral exemplar. Jesus became fully human so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the Lord, Christus Victor. 
and that he may free those which is ransom and Passover lamb, he fr to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like them, solidarity, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement, substitutionary atonement, Passover lamb, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Like Hebrews is a book with, who helps introduce you that, to the fact that Jesus embodied every sacrifice that was needed to help connect people to God. He fulfilled them all. So as you look and as we've studied those seven images, the idea isn't for you to choose which one is your favorite, it's that you have these in your back pocket, and as you study, there may be those you want to dig deeper into, but it is to grow your appreciation for everything Jesus was able to accomplish for us on the cross. There was a fight that had to be fought. And God didn't just give humanity a plan and say, good luck to go fight the fight. God, God didn't just become the coach or the cheerleader. God stepped into the fight. Jesus stepped into the fight and fought a fight for us so that we could live victorious lives. And let's face it, people, we like to win, don't we? We like to win. Americans love to win. Like, we, we're really big on winning. How many of you have a competitive spirit that sometimes gets you in trouble, right? Like, how many of you have ever sat down with family and friends to play games for a bonding experience, but halfway through, it wasn't bonding at all, Right? I mean, it's like go fish, and you're like ready to destroy the person you love the most, right? I, how many of you won your March Madness bracket, just a show of hands? Anybody in the house? <clears throat> so our family, we do a March Madness bracket every year. For nine years, we've done this, and the winner gets to choose what restaurant they go to. And you can see who won in our family this year, all right? And let it be known that if this was me who won, I would not have taken a picture like that. I would have offered up my choice of a restaurant that the family could choose where they wanted to go. So between the four of us, you can just imagine like the different restaurant options that would be there based on who won. I mean, we got everything from five guys to we'll be at Houston's tomorrow, all right? Our staff, we do a bracket. The winner gets to choose what restaurant they go to. And you can, you can see who won the staff bracket. And the way Anna did this is Anna, her, her final four were four representatives from the four states she has lived in in her life, and she won. <laughs> she won. And let it be known that uh, Anna and I did not place a bag on Jim Hinkle's head, all right? He put it, he put it on his own head. He got last place. But, man, we, we like to win, right? We, we like to win. I remember back in 2006, before, this was way before I moved to Memphis, I was a big Dallas Mavericks fan. They made the NBA Finals, and then they lost four straight games. We didn't have kids at the time, and not that that makes what I did <laughs> okay, but I threw a remote control up against the wall. I broke it. It's the only time I've ever broken a remote control. And when I did this, Casey came in the room, and she said, Josh, right now you need to go spend some time with Jesus. <laughs> and there have only been two times I've responded to my wife with, your mom needs to go spend some time with Jesus, because... <laughs> I didn't know what else to say in the moment, all right? So if you've heard me preach for like six months, all it takes is probably a few months for you to know that I grew up a huge Will Smith fan. And unless you haven't been paying attention to anything that's happened in the world a few weeks ago, Will Smith did not have his brightest moment. 
Now, when I watched him walk up to Chris Rock on that stage and slap him, my first thought was probably some of your first thought was, this is just, man, they, they knew this was going to happen. They set it up. It's a joke. Like, they're, gonna, they're, they're punking somebody or something like that. And then it was real. So my second thought was, I'm not joking. My second thought within a few minutes was, I hope people at Sycamore View do, do not get any ideas from what is happening right now. I don't want to make some cat joke and Donna Davenport comes storming the stage on me, all right? <clears throat> that was my second thought. And for Will Smith to have a night, right, that he was about to win, it was going to be the greatest achievement of his career, yet it is now known for arguably the greatest loss of his career or his life. And I'm not asking you to choose Team Will or Team Chris. That's not what this is about. You can go through life with a passion to win at everything and win at a lot of things, yet not make anybody better along the way. And what if you spend so much of your life trying to win at things, but you win at the wrong things? Or... What if losses stack up in your life? You know how that, sometimes that happens, like losses just stack? Like losses of maybe it's physical health or like a job loss or a death of a loved one. Like sometimes it just seems like losses stack. What if losses stack in your life and you fail to ever truly embrace that you are still victorious in Jesus? Or what if losses stack in your life and you do fully embrace that you're victorious in Jesus. That the circumstances of your life, the circumstances of our lives are going to change. But what happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus will never change, yet it changes everything. Everything. So when you think about Christus Victor, that Jesus came and won a battle, he won a war, he stepped into a fight, he took on a fight that should have been ours, and Jesus won. Like, we celebrate that, especially on Easter. Like, we can raise our hands, and we are so grateful for what God has done. But what we also know is that evil is everywhere. Like, there are days it feels like evil's not just winning, but evil's running up the score, right? Like, evil's everywhere. You turn on any news source, and sometimes the headlines, it's telling stories about evil that is happening, either in the city or around the city or around the world. Like, evil is everywhere. In 1989, coming out of the Cold War, there were adults who were asked, are they hopeful for the next generation? And over 50% of them said they had never been more hopeful that the next generation would have a better life than they had had. They were so hopeful and so optimistic about unity, about the world being a better place. And some of the same questions were asked to adults just a few years ago in which very few people felt like the next generation is going to have it better in the future than now because there's so much pessimism and so much evil. And what we have learned, and I, am a, I love science, I believe in science, I believe faith and science come under the reign of God together. And science can eradicate a lot of things in the world. Science can do away with and has done away with a lot of different forms of, of sickness and diseases but science cannot eradicate and do away with evil in the world. The best science can't do it. Only in and through Jesus and what he has accomplished and what he will do will evil be fully eradicated. Anselm, who was a great church leader hundreds of years ago, 
is one of like the brightest minds in Christianity, like the brightest minds. And one, th- one time he said something so simple that I think so many of us understand, and my kids have asked me multiple times. One time he just asked the question, why does God not just come and blow all the demons away? Because God has the power to do it, right? So Friday night I told the story that was told by Frank Peretti of a family that was on a vacation. And as they were on this vacation, a bumblebee got inside of their car. And everybody was going crazy. There's the dad who was driving, the mom in the passenger seat, the kids in the back seat, and the little girl in the back seat. And she was going, she was going crazy because not only was she scared of the bumblebee, she was allergic to bumblebees. And they were miles away from a hospital, so they knew if she got stung, there could be an allergic reaction and nothing they could do about it. So the dad, as calm as he could, sat there in the driver's seat. And when that bumblebee came close to him, with one hand on the wheel, he reached up the other hand and tried to grab it. And when he did, the bumblebee stung him, and the bumblebee kept flying around. So everybody was still going crazy. The little girl was like, it's buzzing, it's buzzing. And the dad just held up his hand and said, baby girl, baby girl, look, look at daddy, look at daddy. The stinger is in my hand. It cannot hurt you. All it can do is buzz. And in and through what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago, the enemy is still doing things in the world, but he knows that his victory is something he will never have. He has been defeated forever. And as Christians and as believers, the New Testament tells you that you are in a battle. But the battle we are in is not a battle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 tells us this. Yet a lot of times people try to make it out to be about flesh and blood. The battle we have been called into isn't against flesh and blood. It is against all the principalities and the powers of the world. And as we step into this battle, we don't step into this battle without a plan. And we don't step into the battles that we find ourselves in right now in life and this week. We don't step into these battles unaware of the outcome. We step into these battles as people who are victorious. So in life, what we are left with is a cross. Now here's what's really interesting about crosses. Did you know Catholics... If you've ever been in a Catholic church or you've been in a home of Catholics, like crosses are everywhere. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but for most Catholics in Catholic churches and uh, as Catholics wear um, crosses around their neck or you go into a home and their cross is hanging on the wall, for many Catholics, their crosses have Jesus on them. And for many Protestants... So most of us in the room, most Protestants, we do crosses too. Like we have crosses here in our worship center. Many of you probably have crosses uh, in your home. You, have, uh, you wear crosses. We tattoo crosses on our bodies. And, but for many Protestants, their crosses don't have Jesus on them. So the reason Catholics have Jesus on the cross is because the suffering of Christ and when Catholics have been at their best, Man, they are all about charity. And a big part of charity is because Jesus suffered, we are called to enter into the world and to suffer too. Like we enter into the sufferings of people to to partner with God and bring a redemption to the entire world. So the idea isn't that Jesus is still suffering on the cross, but it is a reminder. Jesus suffered and we're called to suffer too. And for many Protestants, we wear crosses without Jesus on them to be reminded that Jesus isn't there anymore and there is this resurrected life that we are called to live. So which one is right? And the answer is both. 
to be reminded that the cross Jesus carried and died on, Jesus is the one who tells you, you need to pick up your cross too. Right? Suffer with the world. And that the cross that we worship, or the cross we point our face to is we worship Jesus. Jesus isn't there anymore, reminded us that, reminding us there is resurrected life that we are to embrace. So the very last worship service we had in Jerusalem was at the garden tomb. And the garden tomb actually has a tomb that would have been much like the tomb Joseph of Arimathea had purchased. It was a tomb of a wealthy person. And you actually get a chance to walk into a tomb and to have a moment of prayer and reflection and then to walk out of a tomb. And when we were in Israel back in 2018, like a lot of groups are going through the garden tomb. So you go in, and when you go out, they're pointing you in another direction. So you were not supposed to hold up the entrance. But back in 2018, my mom did. She broke the rules, as my mom cannot, sometimes do. She had already gone in, but when Casey and I went in the tomb back in 2018, my mom wanted to be there when we walked out. I think a part of that is my mom wanted to know what it was like for one of her children to walk out of a grave thinking that one day her daughter is going to walk out of a grave because of Jesus. And now witnessing Casey and me step out of that grave and in tears she embraced us. And the tomb is empty, which has been an anthem for my family since 2010 was a phrase we recited to each other in that moment. So this year, Casey and I told our group we want to go in first. And there were two reasons we wanted to do this. One, we wanted to take photos of everybody when they stepped out of that grave. To send it to them and to remind them forever because Jesus stepped out of a grave, you can too. But the second reason is just wanted to posture myself, like put myself in a place that when these people stepped out of a grave that I could just pray blessings of resurrection power over them, over their lives, their ministries, their families. That what God did through Jesus is what God can do for you. And the first person to come out of that grave was Anna, our children's minister. And Casey and I just hugged her and had a moment. And we, we cried and just were so grateful. And what I prayed and wanted for Anna in that moment is what I want for everyone in this room and in this worship experience today for you to know that resurrection power isn't something you wait for when you die. It is something that God has offered you and offers you right now. This is yours. And if you have yet to step into life with Jesus, we would love to talk with you, pray with you, step into the waters of baptism with you today. In Luke chapter 24, in the story of the walk to Emmaus, Jesus is hanging out with people, and they didn't even know it was Jesus. The resurrected Savior is in their midst, and they didn't know it was him. Until in Luke 24, 31, they're in a room, and Jesus takes bread, and the moment he broke the bread, it says their eyes were open, and they saw Jesus for who he is. And this morning, we're about to come to a table, and I hope and I pray the same thing for you today. Now, the bread we, we take, I don't know how many of you break it. It's kind of bite-sized, all right? But as you hold it in your hand, I hope and pray that God will do the same thing for you this morning as he did in Emmaus. That that bread will open the eyes of your heart to see who you are in God and who God wants you to be in this world. 
So I want to invite my wife, Casey, to come and just to kind of pray and bless this moment for us. And as she comes, let me just give a few instructions. Whoever it is, Shepherd A, our shepherd, is going to be up front. And you may just kind of come to the center today to receive people. Will you go ahead and make your way up here? I don't even know who Shepherd A. Reggie, if you'll come and just, because we're going to, we kind of have a crowd up front. If you'll come stand here. And church, after this prayer, some of you already have prepackaged communion with you, but we have six tables in this room. And the idea that we're trying to live into right now is the fact that God has moved to us and we move to God. Like together we move. As resurrected people, we move. So we have six tables in this room and shepherds, if you want to go and just kind of be close to those tables to help people. But in the next few minutes, we're just inviting you to make your way to a table. Whatever pace it is you want to take, we have, we have time. We're going to be here for five minutes or so and time goes fast. But, so pace yourselves. You don't have to go rush to tables. And you can do three things when you get to a table. You can take the bread and the cup right there and it's stacked in a cup. So the bread is under the cup. And it's that you can take it and you can just throw the cups in the trash. You can choose to go somewhere in this room with family or friends where you have a prayer time over the bread and cup together. Or you can take those elements and you can go right back to your seat and have a time of reflection right there where you are. We just invite you to one of these six tables over the next few minutes. Church, may the same power to lift the Jesus out of a grave. May it be upon you and your life this week and as you move forward. Let's bow our heads. such a good God, a Father who loves us dearly. We're so thankful that you sent your Son to walk these dusty roads, to love when you were burned out, to heal when you were tired, to laugh and live with us on this earth. God, thank you. Thank you for going all the way for letting love hold you to the cross when you could have come down. But to stay there and endure suffering and shame so that we could have a relationship with you. God, we thank you. And we're, we thank you this morning, and it's electric in this room. It's electric because we are so full of joy. Whether life is beating us down or lifting us up right now, whatever situation we're in, God, we can come as a group of people and look at each other and say, the tomb is empty. We can look at each other and say, I know it's hard, but keep your head up because God is on your side. He's with you. He loves you. He's holding your hand. He has not forgotten you or forsaken you. He is right there in the pit. And God, we thank you. Because nobody else's God does that in any other, other religion. You're it. And God, the story is true. And we believe it with our whole hearts. And Lord, help us in our unbelief. God, we thank you that you gave up everything for us. God, we thank you that in your last meal with your closest friends, you washed feet and you took bread, and you took wine, and you said, this is the new covenant. This is the new deal. This is my blood. This is my body. If you participate in this with me, we're together forever. And God, I thank you because I'm in. I am in. You are my choice. 
and I will take my children to the throne room of Jesus for as long as I have breath in my lungs because you are my choice. And God, I'm thankful for this body of believers that helps me do that and that reminds me that this is not some made-up story. As ridiculous as it may sound, that this is a true story. And we celebrate it today and next Sunday and the next and the next. God, you are good. And we thank you that we serve a risen Savior that didn't stay dead. He walked out of the grave. So as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we celebrate with millions and millions of believers in the quiet, dark spaces of their home and their neighborhoods because they'd be in trouble if somebody found out, and those that are doing it in the open like we can here. For those in Ukraine celebrating and taking the the blood and and, and the bread this morning, God, we thank you and we praise you. And until we see you face to face, we proclaim that the tomb is empty. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray and we partake. Amen. Amen. Enjoy these few minutes with God and make your way to a table whenever it is you want to move.